Welcome back to The Yoga Show from Yoga Journal, your place to connect with thought leaders in the wellness community who are making waves, big and small. I'm your host, Lindsay Tucker, executive editor of Yoga Journal. And in this podcast, we produce four episode series around the themes of each issue of our magazine. Our July-August issue is all about energy and how to harness it when you need it most. And today's guest uses classical Chinese medicine and its understanding of qi, the energy of all things, to help her clients find holistic well-being through tailored treatments and meal plans. Natalie Basile is a practitioner of classical Chinese medicine who studied at the Taoist Traditions College of Chinese Medical Arts in Asheville, North Carolina. She's featured in the article, The Qi of Food, written by Yoga Journal senior editor Hannah Lott Schwartz, which you can find on newsstands now. Natalie, how are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? Great. Thank you so much for being here with us today. We're really excited. We had Natalie in our most recent issue, and um, we're here today to talk all about food energetics and healing through the energy of food. So Natalie, I'd love it if you could just take a minute and tell our listeners, what is qi? So the simplest explanation would be that qi is the energy, the energy of the universe, but more specifically with humans, it's the energy that is responsible for all of the functions and structures of the human body. And you work with qi with food, how? So food really influences qi based on uh, food and qi kind of are mutually interactive. There are different elements of qi in the body that are activated when we eat food. The energetics of food contribute to the activities, we could say, of qi. Um, So that's the main way, looking at food energetics and then thinking, okay, so if I see a certain organ imbalance or some imbalance in someone's body, what foods are going to most readily help to kind of rebalance things and work toward homeostasis. And how do you recognize the energy of foods? This is something that has really been passed down through a lot of oral um, traditions in classical Chinese medicine, but there's also a lot of literature out there. So for Chinese medicine practitioners, there are lots of books now that go through the energetics of different ingredients, um, which is really nice. So, And for more specific ingredients or foods that I don't find in those books. I've been really lucky to have, um, like I said, the oral tradition passed down from um, Jeffrey Yuen, who's an 88th generation Taoist priest and is one of the founders of the acupuncture school that I went to. He's a really amazing classical acupuncturist. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your education. So the school that I went to is called Taoist Traditions. Um, It's in the Montford neighborhood of Asheville, North Carolina. And I kind of fell into it accidentally, the classical Chinese medicine aspect, because when I applied to school, I didn't know the difference. I just wanted a school that was close to home. But essentially, classical Chinese medicine differs from traditional Chinese medicine because there are elements of it, um, like this, more the spiritual and I would say psycho-emotional aspects that we put a heavier focus on and also... Um, people's ancestry, things like that. All of that kind of comes together to paint a picture of what we see going on in the body, how we diagnose, how we treat. Um, So with traditional Chinese medicine, during the the time of Mao Zedong, they wanted to systematize Chinese medicine and make it competitive with Western medicine. So they kind of did away with some of what lots of people would say maybe is like the woo-woo aspect. So there's less talk and there's not really talk in Chinese in traditional Chinese medicine about doing ghost treatments or, you know, um, talking about 
I mean, I guess you do talk about emotions in traditional Chinese medicine, but the spiritual aspects are definitely less present because they didn't think that, you know, at the time there wasn't really that paradigm shift in the West for them to think about the psycho-emotional effects on our health. Um, so, And what are the psycho-emotional effects on our health that you see in your studies? So this, the way that I was taught, again, through Jeffrey Yuen, is that disease really, the root cause of all disease, is emotional imbalances that start in our bodies. Um, so whether it's stress from the environment, emotional stress, but it's really, you know, the word disease itself, it's dis-ease. It's, it's where we're not completely at ease. We're not completely our full self, so to speak. Um, so, you know, when I think about, I, you know, when I see patients, for instance, that have a lot of repressed anger, they have a lot of grief that they're holding on to. These are all things that affect the qi dynamic in our bodies. Uh, in Chinese medicine, there's a lot of talk about how different emotions affect the qi. So, for instance, anger makes the qi rise up. Um, grief can make the chi kind of descend. Um, there are other things that can make the chi stagnate. Um, you know, ha too much happiness, too much joy can disperse the chi and kind of just make us, it's too spread out and it's not able to effectively do its job. So having that background information, when I have patients come in and, you know, I get to know them and their story a little bit more, it's really informative with the direction of their care. So for instance, someone that comes in and has some chronic lung issues, maybe it's because, you know, there's a relative weakness in their kidneys and that dynamic is affected. But maybe this person also is going to tell me, well, you know, my mom passed away five years ago and I've never fully gotten over it. And the more I talk with them, they bring up their mom every single time they're in the treatment room. And I'm like, okay, this is, this is clearly something that is affecting their day-to-day well-being. And it's something that we need to work with for them to achieve that balance. Mm -hmm. And you did pre-med at Duke and you come from a family of doctors. Is that right? Yes. So what pushed you in the direction of Chinese medicine? Well, when I was in college, um, I studied abroad. So I was a French major. I studied abroad in Paris, and when I was there, I realized I had a real passion and knack for cooking. It was the first time I ever felt like I tried something and I was just good at it. Um, mm -hmm. And so I started to think, you know, how could I marry this with my love of medicine and my desire to, to heal people? And so at the time, I started saying I want to heal people through food. And that, I mean, this was in... 2006, 2007, it wasn't really a thing at the time or not super in vogue. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my mentors were sort of like, what? You're, you're going to be a chef. Like, what do you mean you like cooking, but you're in pre-med? Um, but that's sort of how it happened. I just, um, that kind of felt right to me. And so when I moved to California, I got my first cooking job and I also interned with a naturopath and he kind of also helped marry that more for me. Um, Mm -hmm. I thought I was going to go into naturopathy, and then here I am, you know, Chinese medicine mm -hmm. after it's all said and done. But yeah, I really, I liked Chinese medicine because of the fact that there had been herbalism and dietary therapy as part of their treatment for thousands of years, and it made sense to me. Yeah. And how do you think your medical training in Western medicine informs what you do today, if at all? You know, I've got to say... Um, I think that it it just very – I don't know that it really does, in all honesty. Um, 
at pre-med at Duke, it's really just about how good you are at the sciences. There's not a lot mm-hmm. of medicine involved, you know. So for mm-hmm. a long time, I thought I couldn't be a doctor. I wasn't smart enough to be a doctor because I failed physics <laughs> the first time I took it. And I was, <laughs> you know, so I wouldn't really say that my training did, especially because when you study Chinese medicine, you're learning literally a completely new paradigm, a completely new way of looking at disease and diagnosis and the way the body functions. And so it kind of behooves you, even if you've had some medical training before, to put it in the back of your mind at first. Because it's, I mean, you just feel like the information is going to leak out of your ears. There's so much memorization. Um, mm-hmm. So I wouldn't really say that it informs it too much. I mean, I think about Western medicine because we had a lot of training in that. And also I come from a medical family, but I would say at at this juncture, my brain is more Chinese medicine circuitry. Mm -hmm. And would you say that Chinese medicine focuses more on finding the root cause of an ailment than treating symptoms? Yes, absolutely. And I would say that that, again, is a reason why I ended up here, even though, you know, Yeah, that's the reason why I ended up here, because I remember being pre-med and saying I would like to study internal medicine, but the cause of why we get sick. And that's essentially what I do now. It's just not allopathic medicine. That's to me the most beautiful part of Chinese medicine is going back and tracing someone's path through their story of how they got to where they are, because it's completely different for everyone. I could get five people that come in for the same ailment and -hmm. even have similar symptoms but it's going to be a different process of what got them there and ultimately a different treatment because of that. Yeah. So would you say that Western medicine and Chinese medicine are at odds or can they work together? They can absolutely work together and they do very beautifully. I would say that, you know, from what I've seen, um, Chinese medicine is really adept at working with issues that are kind of like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like they're, there's not a formal, there's a formal diagnosis, but there's not, it's kind of just like a, a whole slew of symptoms, you know, like chronic fatigue. It's chronic fatigue is that, you know, what is chronic fatigue? That's, that's something that in Western medicine, you'd say that you have this and this and this, and they're like, well, we're going to call it chronic fatigue because there's really nothing else to call it. We're really great at working with things that Western medicine can't quite put a finger on. But in Chinese medicine, can we go in and like, put a scope and look in someone's artery, you know, like we don't, Mm -hmm. we don't do that. So I would say, especially with um, cardiovascular care, Western medicine is excellent, but regardless of, you know, what someone ultimately chooses as the way they want to be treated, they always work together. You know, if someone's like, I'm going to go get a knee replacement or hip replacement, Chinese medicine, acupuncture can help both prepare you for the, for the surgery and help you recover more quickly after, Um, you know, working with people who are women who are going through IVF treatments. It's very, very, very complimentary. It's pretty awesome. Mm, that's awesome. So walk us through what is it like when you see a patient for, for the first time? You know, what sort of things are you talking to them about? And then how do you come to set up a plan for them, et cetera? So the first time that someone comes in um, for a treatment, I start by looking at all the paperwork that they fill out because they they do an extensive kind of questionnaire that talk, you know, it asks them about everything from their sleep patterns to how their digestion is, um, you know, to any trauma that they've experienced, any surgeries they've had. I look through all of that, but I sit and I just talk with them for a good 20, 25 minutes. Um, and I kind of go through all those things again, 
because a big part of it is hearing, I like to say straight from the horse's mouth, how patients answer questions about their health and what's going on, because the language can be very informative. Like if someone's describing an ache, some people, you know, they'll be like, it's burning and searing, and other people will be like, oh, you know, it, it just makes me feel, it makes me feel so slow and, emo you know, the way that they mm -hmm. describe it is really helpful. So we go through all of that. I ask all these questions. I take their pulse. Um, that's really informative. So we have three pulse positions and three depths, and that offers a really great kind of snapshot into what's going on in the body and the meridians. I look at their tongue. That's another really amazing indicator of what's going on internally, any imbalances that are coming up. Um, so how does the pulse and the tongue indicate these things? What, what can you read there? So with the tongue, you look at there's sort of like a, the topography of the tongue, the layout of the tongue, the shape of it, how fat it is, the color of it, how thick the coat is, if there are any cracks in it, you know, um, if there are any areas where it seems like it's what we call peeled. So if you look at your tongue, the top of it will have like a, a coat of some sort and you'll see, you know, like all of the little um, papilla and things like that. But on the side, mm -hmm. some people's tongues will actually start to look a little peeled if there's an imbalance and so it'll be like I don't know almost shiny like it just looks like there's no covering on it um all of these so things would that be an energy imbalance or what kind of imbalance so on the side of the tongue I usually look at that as more of like a liver or a spleen issue um mm -hmm. a lot of times I'll notice so people's tongues the edges might look pinched or they might have tooth marks on them mm -hmm. and Toothmarked tongue generally means that your tongue is a little bit swollen. And so that shows me that you have an imbalance with the spleen and there's some excessive dampness that's causing fluids to stagnate and physically make the tongue puffy. Um, sometimes people have a normal sized tongue that's not really puffy, but it'll look pinched. And when I see that personally, I interpret it as liver chi constraint. So I almost imagine the person when they're reacting towards whatever they encounter on a day-to-day -day basis, that it's almost like you kind of clench your teeth and like your tongue is stuck in there and it kind of makes it pinched. So when I see that, I'm like, okay, there's some constraint. It's almost like they have stuff that they want to get out and it's not coming out. That's what I think of with liver constraint and liver stagnation, stuff that needs to be expressed. Mm -hmm. Again, going back to the emotional aspect of it, that's not coming out and then is kind of messing with the um, homeostasis of the body. And then what about pulse? So pulse, you look to see how it feels under your finger. And this is, pulse diagnosis is a lifelong art, honestly. It's, it's, a, it's incredible. But you feel for the width. You feel for the way it feels under your finger. So for instance, a rolling or a slippery pulse it feels like someone's taking a pearl necklace and kind of sliding it under your finger. You, that's the way it's described in literature, and that's honestly the best way I could describe it. But it's markedly different from the way, you know, a healthier pulse will feel or from the way, say, a tight pulse will feel like a guitar string under your finger. A wiry p pulse will feel like literally like a wire under, you know, it's just like tight and it's taut and it's kind of pushing against your finger, almost trying to push it off the person's arm. Um, yeah. So we look and see what's happening with the pulse and that can tell us, you know, maybe this person has a relative imbalance of fluids or maybe this person didn't get a good night's sleep. A lot of times I'll feel what's known as a choppy pulse uh, at the surface of people that are not getting good sleep. 
So you feel mm-hmm. all these different things at, in the different positions and, you know, it can tell me, oh, your spleen's a little weak or, oh, your liver's kind of tight or, oh, you have maybe not enough heart blood. And so that's the underlying issue it can tell us a lot. Mm-hmm. And so what would you do with them from there? So from there, as we're talking and as I'm taking their pulses and all this, I'm kind of formulating in my head what I think is going on relative to what their chief complaint is. So on the paperwork and when we talk, there's always going to be one major reason why they're coming in, whether it's insomnia or digestive issues or whatever. So I take all that and I add it up. And then on the spot, I'm sort of like, okay, this is this is where I want this treatment to go. And maybe I'll say, okay, we're going to do some cupping today, then we're going to do some acupuncture. But I just kind of formulate it as I go um, with a new patient. With return patients as well, but with them, there's more background for me to go and say, oh, we're working on your, your menstrual cycle. So I kind of come in knowing a little bit of what I'm doing. The Yoga Show will return in a moment after these messages. Okay, so you practice some different modalities on them, acupuncture, you mentioned cupping, mm-hmm. um, and then do you do meal plans as well? Because I know that you, um, it says that you use Ayurveda and you work with chi and energy for food. Yeah, so Ayurveda, I would say to a lesser degree, just because my formal training is in Chinese medicine, but that's definitely mm-hmm. part of how I think of, I always refer back to the doshas a lot for people's constitutions, because it really jumps mm-hmm. out at me. Um pretty quickly with people, what I think they're kind of leaning toward. I do, we talk about diet and food, but it's really only if someone expressly comes in and wants a meal plan or wants me to, um, you know, like write them a recipe or something like that. Generally, it's more, whether it's um, an acupuncture treatment or I do specific appointments that are just a nutritional consult, I'll Mm -hmm. go in and say, this is the imbalance that I'm finding. These are foods that you should really consider implementing, you know, like adding into your diet. These are things you should watch out for. Generally across the board, we'll talk about with every patient is the earth element and just optimal habits for optimal digestion. Those are, that's a really big thing that regardless of whether someone wants my input about food, I always, once I hear about what they like to eat and drink, you know, someone will say, I'm a vegetarian and I eat like a lot of grains and beans. And so my first question is always, do you soak them? You know, because I know you're not here for me to tell you about all these things. A lot of my patients come in and they're already very informed about making good food choices, but it's just maybe like it needs to be tweaked and refined for them to, for their own constitution, for them to be at optimal health levels. And what are some of the habits that you mentioned for optimal health? For eating so like not eating on the go is a big one not eating too late um you know trying to just sit and have like a have a meal that's nice and calming and you're not distracted you're focused on your food and you know I think we're all really not the best at that in this day and age because I know for me even when I'm at home eating I really like to read something or you know just engage my mind in some way Ideally, that's Mm -hmm. really not what we should be doing. We should just be sitting and focusing on what we're doing, which is just eating and appreciating our meal. That's ideal. Mm -hmm. Um, How does that benefit the body? um, It's beneficial for the body because then our body's not doing anything else but working on trying to pre-digest and then digest our food. 
You know, if you're doing homework while you're eating, your brain is tied up and using a lot of blood and oxygen that could be going to your digestive tract. Um, just like if you're driving a car, if you're, you know, talking to someone, there's, it's a disruption in your body's ability to just concentrate and focus that energy just on the digestive process. Mm-hmm. Which I would also argue is all the more important in this day and age because so many of the foods that we eat really aren't in their most digestible form. So our body really, really does need to be able to focus, you know. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about that. I mean, so in terms of a lot of the, we all know about processed packaged foods and that's not ideal, but the reality is unless you're cooking all of your own food from scratch or you spend like $500 a week on groceries, you're going to end up at some point eating something that's a little bit refined, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Our bodies digest those things differently. The way that the carbohydrates and sugars are broken down, uh, my big thing, I have a big thing with dairy because I think dairy is really wonderful, but the fact of the matter is that unless it's in a raw form, the proteins are denatured to such a point that our body digests them very, very differently. Um, so, yeah, just going back to things that it takes extra energy for our body to digest, then there's all the more reason for us to sit and stop and really just be in the moment of that. And also to just get the maximum enjoyment. I mean, my food tastes so much better to me when I'm actually sitting and looking at it and thinking about each bite as opposed to just mindlessly shoving food in my mouth while I'm like watching TV or, you know, reading or whatever, surfing the internet. I think that it, right. it's an experience. It's a very, I don't know. Yeah. It's a lovely experience. <laughs> so I think we've all sort of had that experience where you eat a big, maybe not so healthy meal and then you feel really sluggish, you know, hashtag food coma. Mm-hmm. Um, is that a direct result of what we're eating or the way we're eating it or sort of a combination? I would say a combination. Um, and also the timing can be a big part of it as well. Uh, the way that I look at things with meal timing is I think in this day and age, it's the most helpful for someone's biggest meal to be lunch. Okay. I know that historically people are really big on breakfast, but my personal take on it, this is just the way I look at it. I think that that was a little bit, um, that fit a little bit better when it was more of a farming culture where it's like you get up with the sun and you're working in the fields and you need that big boost of energy right from the start of the day. But realistically, most people's schedules and lifestyles aren't like that. So it's ideal for lunch to be the biggest meal of the day because that's when, you know, we're moving around the most. We're going to ideally be less sedentary. Um, And then in the evening, that's too close to bedtime. So you don't want your biggest, most complex meal of the day to be two or three hours before bed. Um, That's just too much work for your body. And that's a lot of work during a time when, again, it should be focused on performing other tasks. Um, In Chinese medicine, we view the organ system as having specific periods of the day or night when each organ is kind of at its strongest So for instance, or when it's, you know, there's work that's being done. So the time for the gallbladder is 11 to one. The time for the liver is one to three. And it goes in this, in succession. My point though, going back to it is that, you know, if you're eating a meal at 1130 at night, that's the time for your gallbladder to be doing its thing and for it to be getting the chi it needs. And if your body is having to give that chi to the stomach for you to digest food, then that's 
not ideal and you could down the road end up having some sort of issues with your gallbladder, whether it's the organ or the meridian. Now, are there charts or some kind of time schedule that we can look at online or something? Yes. Yes. If you Google like meridian clock, Chinese medicine, something like that, you can see um, the order that it goes in. It's really nice. It's helpful. Um, Another way that it's really helpful is a lot of times my patients will come in and say, well, you know, I wake up at the same time every night um, and it's really difficult to go back to sleep or whatever. And I will say, you know, is there, what time is that? Is there a specific time or does it vary? And they'll say, oh, you know, it's it's usually around 2.30 or 3. And I'm like, okay, well, that's helpful for me to know because that's the liver time. So maybe you've got some liver heat or maybe there's some liver stagnation that's waking you up. Or someone will say, I get really hot and sweaty every morning at like 6 o'clock. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, that's like the stomach time. So, uh, or the large intestine time rather. So there might be something with that. And where does this information come from traditionally? This is from ancient China. This is like, you know, um, classical Chinese medicine, now traditional Chinese medicine. That's one of the things that didn't change whenever they systematized it. So um, Mm -hmm. this man, Jeffrey Yuan, he really likes to weave in Chinese history with our teachings. It's pretty cool because it, you know, it's really informative as as far as seeing when different... um, I don't know, different aspects of Chinese medicine kind of came into vogue. So like, you know, there's some some practitioners that really like to practice and focus on like clearing heat. And he'll say, well, this style came about when there was a really bad pandemic going going on or epidemic in um, China and a lot of people were dying. And so they came up with these ways to treat people. And um, so, yeah, history is very informative with that. And maybe one day I can tell you some more. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Thank you. Um, Okay. So based on all of your different modalities that you study, can you give us a couple of tips for optimizing energy throughout the day? The biggest one I would say is going back to the timing of um, when your largest meal is. I think that... um, Again, for lunch being the biggest. But with breakfast, I do think that it's still important to have something in your body. Um, So my recommendations for breakfast are generally, you know, maybe – well, here's the thing. I can't give you recommendations across the board for people for – for breakfast, for instance, because different people have different needs. Some people might have a lot of heat. And so I'll say you should have fruit for breakfast and other people will have a lot of cold. And I'll say you should have oatmeal for breakfast every day. But having something to literally break that fast, I think is important, especially if you're a caffeine drinker. It's not good to have caffeine on an empty stomach, no matter how strong you think you are. So, um, that would be good for optimal energy. Um, Food combining, that's kind of, I could go on down a rabbit hole with food combining, but suffice it to say that you will have more energy if you do not combine like intense um, carbohydrates with protein. So like a steak and a baked potato for lunch is probably going to put you out for a little bit, you know, whereas if you have like steak with some greens, you'll feel a lot lighter. So I would say that without getting too far into (laughs) food combining. Okay. And you mentioned, you know, if someone's hot, they might not want to have a hot breakfast. If someone's cold, they might not want to have a cold breakfast. Is there a way for us to figure that out for ourselves? Good question. I 
I want people to be informed, but I also hesitate to have people doing their own self-diagnosis because I, mm-hmm. it's not always as simple as just what does your tongue look like. But I would say in general, just look at kind of how you're feeling from day to day. Are you someone that tends to run really hot when everyone else is cold? Are you taking off layers? Like, does your tongue look like it's a bright red color? Um, you know, do you sweat easily sometimes? Well, even the sweating easily thing. See, Chinese medicine just, I don't even know how to describe it, but it's like one long piece of spaghetti, like a long noodle that's never ending. It just weaves, like, there's so many other possibilities for everything that sometimes it's really difficult to to make like a blanket statement. But check in with yourself and see. I think the biggest thing is, do you run hot or do you run cold? That's, mm-hmm. I think, probably the easiest way. Because tongue and pulse, sometimes I find patients that have a lot of heat and their tongue is pale. And you would think, you know, that they're cold and that's not the case. So I hesitate to tell people, look at your tongue and that'll give you the answer. But yeah, check in and see, do you run hot or cold? I think that's a really helpful way to see. And I would like to add, too, that just because you have heat doesn't mean that you couldn't have oatmeal for breakfast. It's more that your body could tolerate it more regular, more readily than someone that has some underlying cold. And what happens when we have caffeine on an empty stomach? Because I've always been able to drink coffee on an empty stomach, but if I have tea, I get immediate stomach ache. What kind of tea, if you don't mind me asking? Is yeah, that green it's usually, tea or usually a green tea. So here's the thing with green tea. Green tea is the most energetically cooling on the gradient of caffeinated teas. So green tea is like the young leaves. It's very green, more livery sort of, um, you know, just it's a lot more cooling. Oolong is in the middle because it undergoes a little bit of fermentation, but there's but not so much that it's warm. So oolong's kind of in the middle, maybe going towards warming, and puar tea is the most warming. So I I hear that a lot from people that drink green tea. So that's why I wanted to throw this in. Green tea is very energetically cooling. So on an empty stomach, it can give you a stomach ache. Definitely. Um, Just in general, though, like a lot of caffeine and I mean a little bit more with the coffee. But too, if if green tea upsets your stomach, it's just it's unnecessary stress on your organs. You know, like it's just unnecessary Mm -hmm. stress for your body. It, It kind of. In my mind, the way I feel, at least when I have caffeine on an empty stomach, I feel scattered. So I would venture to say that it scatters the chi. Um, if you think about, what's a good a good way to describe this? So if you think about your your chi and your body when you first get up before you've had breakfast as like little pieces of confetti on the ground. And if you have caffeine, it's like a wind that's going to blow that confetti everywhere but if you have a little bit of food in your stomach that's almost like if you if it rained and the confetti was stuck to the ground and so then if the wind blows it's not going to really go anywhere mm-hmm. and I guess that might be too far because it's not like I don't want your chi to move but do you kind of see what I mean about in Chinese medicine there's a big idea of of energy needing to be anchored and so yeah caffeine is very young in its energetics it's very moving and you know raising in nature and so it can just be it can just be a bit much. And over time, that can drain our resources. If you're putting a lot of warming, moving substances without anything to anchor it, over time that can create an imbalance. So what's a better way to get energized? I would say you mean instead of having coffee on an empty stomach? Yeah, in the morning, you know, instead of just waking up, making your coffee, is there another way that we should be energizing ourselves? 
I think it's really helpful to do some light stretching. I mean, you know, it's really, Mm -hmm. it's ideal if you can, you know, do have a yoga practice or something like that. Um, I don't personally have a morning yoga routine. I I would like to get back into that. But even just waking up and stretching, taking some deep breaths. um, I know it's big in um, Chinese culture to kind of just like hit your body with like Mm. almost an open fist, like you're knocking on a door, just to go and wake everything up, you know, bring fresh blood flow. It's all about getting the blood moving. That's what's going to give us energy. So getting oxygen into the blood by taking some deep breaths, doing some stretching. I think that's a really nice way. Um, Chug some water. Great. Those are my my go-tos. We'll be right back with more from The Yoga Show. Um, Something you mentioned earlier was the time of eating and intermittent fasting is really popular right now. Mm -hmm. Is there anything to that energetically or from traditional Chinese medicine that we think, oh yeah, this is really good or maybe it's not so great? I would say so because I think that um, Chinese medicine is always about moderation and I find widely that the world we live in I can't say the whole world, but I'll talk about the culture of the U.S. is definitely more on the side of a little bit excessive. So I kind of just like to tell people, eat if you're hungry and don't eat if you're not. So, you know, if you had a a really big meal kind of later in the day than you wanted and you wake up and you're really not hungry, don't don't eat anything or, you know, just have something really, really light. Um, That's at least the rules that I follow for myself. Like case in point. I ate a steak like a week ago and I don't eat a lot of red meat, especially in the form of steak. And I felt so full that it took, I wasn't hungry until the next day, probably at like two o'clock. And when did and you that's, eat it? Oh man, I ate it. It was later than I wanted to, but I think I ate it around seven or eight at night. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's probably also some chi deficiency, making my body break it down a little slower and like just not being used to digesting red meat. But, um, but yeah, so I think that there definitely is something to the concept of intermittent fasting, but I hesitate to have people, you know, time it. And I think that one of the big issues in our current society with like, um, all these different diets and with like weight loss and stuff is just putting so much focus on it that it takes the joy out of it. It's like, it's not fun Mm -hmm. to eat anymore. If you're always like planning what time you're allowed to eat or how much you're like, you know, it, there is definitely something to, to it again, in terms of moderation and self-control, but I think it's, it goes back to mindfulness. And I think that Hannah touched a lot on that in the article that she wrote, it's about mindfulness. And so you know, checking in with yourself regularly is one of the best things you can ever do to try to keep up your health. And I think this extends from digestion to even COVID. Like when I talk to people about coronavirus, I say, check in with yourself every single day. Do you feel different? Like that's Mm -hmm. to me the best way to manage your health. So going back to the intermittent. And how do we do a check-in? Just thinking like, you know how you feel from on a day-to-day basis. I know how I feel on a day-to-day basis. So if I wake up and I feel scratchy in my throat and that's not normal, then I'm like, okay, let me get on it and hit some essential oils hard and take some herbs and, you know, take it easy on my body, get extra rest. Like you check in and you see that something's off. And so you immediately 
do whatever is within your power to try to set things back on their course. Because the longer that things are off, the more likely it is that you'll eventually run into some imbalance that could be acute or chronic. But, you know, it's like the first sign of a cold. Rest. Don't don't go run six miles just because you planned on it with your best friend. Like if you feel like you're getting sick or you feel something's off, take immediate action to try to rectify it. And that's the, I think the best way that you can optimize your health. So just check in, like you ate some food. How is it sitting in your stomach? Are you getting some gas? Do you feel nauseous? Do you feel pretty good? Do you feel tired? Like those are all really helpful things for you to know what, what is the best thing for me to put in my body? Because every single, you know, there's so many doctors out there that are like, you need to have the Mediterranean diet or you need to do keto or you need to do this. Like everybody's constitution is different. So there's no blanket statement for what you should be eating. The only sort of blanket statement that I ever put with regards to food is, you know, just try not to have too much raw and cold because in Chinese medicine, that's not helpful. But, you know, like it depends for everyone. Yeah. And then what what does our ancestry have to do with our energy? Oh, man, so much. <laughs> so the ancestry is essentially in, – in Western medicine, we look at it as DNA that you inherit from each parent, right? And so your DNA comes from your parents and your parents' parents and all that. Well, in Chinese medicine, we refer to that as Jing. And the interesting thing with Jing – and I feel like if they haven't already discovered this, it's going to come in the future – Jing carries with it not just like the DNA as we see it, but it also is like how strong, like any any imbalances that your parents have, any unresolved issues, especially on the mother's side, will come through to the fetus. Um, whew, I'm trying to think of how I can explain this without going into another wormhole with this <laughs> with classical <laughs> Chinese medicine. But yes, Jing carries with it the experiences of our ancestors. So what you inherit is going to have some of the experiences over time from the people that are in your lineage. Um, that's probably the best way to describe it. Jing is, it's like the densest, most, densest and deepest aspect of ourselves. And it's made up primarily of what we inherit from our parents but it also is comprised of things from our day-to-day -day life. That So there are ways to kind of nourish our jing. Yeah, um, how do we do that? I mean, do we by get healthy therapy, lifestyle. healthy lifestyle? Yeah, I mean, healthy lifestyle as in, yes, therapy absolutely counts in there because therapy, you're, you're working through unresolved issues, you know, unresolved microtraumas in your body. That's so important because, yeah, that – affects the chi dynamic in your body and it affects your health on a day-to-day -day basis and it definitely over years, you know, going back to unresolved trauma or unresolved emotions that we keep inside. They sit and they fester. Like they don't mm -hmm. just evaporate. They sit and they, they do damage. They cause imbalances. So absolutely having stress releasers, you know, like going for walks, having whatever it is for you that makes you feel sane and whole in this crazy world that we live in is super important for not draining your jing, you know? Um, yeah, self-care is, is crucial because the world that we live in, we don't all have the luxury of being able to not work and not get stressed out from traffic or from, you know, like there's so many different stressors. Um, so 
Yeah, just mm-hmm. having a healthy lifestyle, being selective about what foods you put in your body, being selective about what thoughts go through your mind, the people you hang out with, all these things contribute to whether we're building up our jing or whether we're going, you know, kind of not. Like jing is very yin. So our yin reserves, you know, going back to yin and yang. Yin, it's like we, we're born with a certain amount of yin that is jing from our parents, like I said, and then it's also supplanted by what what we eat in particular for the yin. Um, so, yeah, it's really important because you kind of can think of yin itself as like, you know, the gas in your tank. So say you get like a rental car and it's half full. So like half mm-hmm. of it is from the agency, your parents. And then the other stuff, your lifestyle can contribute and help build it up or it can just kind of like wear it down, um, you know. Like I used to be a line cook in Brooklyn and that was definitely wearing away at my yin reserves pretty quickly, (laughs) even though it was some of the best years of my life. But they were, you know, it was hard physically, mentally. It was difficult. So our day-to-day life can wear away at that. And the only way that we can kind of help amend that is by having healthy thoughts via, you know, healthy food in our minds via thoughts, healthy food in our bodies. Right. What resources can you recommend for anyone who wants to learn more about classical Chinese medicine? I would say that if you're ever able to attend or hear a lecture from Jeffrey Yuan, he's, I think he's just one of the best people to describe it. But some other practitioners, um, one in particular, actually, so he's not a practitioner. His wife is. So Anne Cecil Sturman is a very famous classical Chinese medicine practitioner in this country. She practices out of New York. Um, she is a great resource and I've started reading her blog and I think I signed up for her newsletter recently. She has really beautiful explanations for things Chinese medicine, classical Chinese medicine related, but her husband, Andrew Sturman, um, he is not a Chinese medicine practitioner, but he has studied with Jeffrey Yuen for many years, particularly focusing on, um, food therapy. He put out two books recently that I'm really excited about. Um, They're some of the first books that marry classical Chinese medicine with, you know, the dietary therapy aspect. And it's called Welcoming Food, his book. Um, I highly recommend checking it out. But those are, I think those are good places to start just with the underlying theory, for sure. Great. Great. Thank you. And where can listeners find more from you? I don't really have an online presence in all honesty. Yeah, I, that's something I still have to set up. You can call me or email me. <laughs> I don't have anything online, but I'm always happy to answer emails. My email address is on the Alchemy website if anyone ever has any pressing questions or would like a Zoom consultation. Great. And we can put the Alchemy website down in the show notes. I think it's alchemyashville.com. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been really great to hear from you and also to have you in the issue. Anyone who wants to learn more about the energetics of food and all that Natalie does can check out the issue on newsstands or read about it online on yogajournal.com. Thank you so much for having me. That was fun. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to Natalie for joining us. To learn more about the chi of food, check out the issue on newsstands now or head to yogajournal.com. Find more from Natalie at alchemyashville.com and tune in two weeks from now for a new episode of The Yoga Show. Don't forget to throw us a rate and review. In the meantime, you can follow me at lins.tucker, that's lins with a D, on Instagram for more from Yoga Journal and beyond. The Yoga Show is produced by me and Aviv Rubenstein. 
follow him on social media at Rambo Calrissian. Theme music by Katie Kahneman. More from her at Accordion to Katie on Instagram. Until next time for The Yoga Show, I'm Lindsay Tucker. We'll see you on the mat. For accessible 5-30 to minute meditation, pranayama, yoga nidra, and mantra practices from some of the world's leading teachers, tune into Yoga Journal's The Practice at yogajournal.com slash podcasts.